Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, WattTime is looking for a software engineer for clean energy. NASDAQ is looking for a product designer. Gravity Tank is looking for an interaction designer. Buffer is hiring for several roles, front-end developer, product creator, marketing engineer, data analyst, and customer researcher. And Revision Path is looking for staff writers. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. And if you're looking for more jobs, become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook Design isn't just about building one product or solving one type of design problem. They design for a huge swath of different audiences over a number of different industries. Not only that, Facebook invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job, and they care about the broader design community and giving back. You want to learn more about what Facebook Design does? Check them out at facebook.com forward slash design. MailChimp is the best software out there for sending marketing emails, automated messages, and targeted campaigns. Join more than 10 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 600 million emails every day. Sign up today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it easy for you to find that domain name and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 10% off your purchase. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. We're holding steady at 33 patrons for a combined total of $224 per month. Again, a huge thanks for all of you that are supporting the show through Patreon. I know some of you also are supporting via PayPal, which we appreciate that as well. All of that goes into making sure we keep the show running and improving. Uh, if you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some really great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, and free Revision Path swag, head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month, and it's a great way to support the show on a regular basis. Speaking of special giveaways, we're giving away a copy of Sprint, the new book from Google Ventures that details a unique five-day process for solving tough problems. It takes you behind the scenes with some of America's most fascinating startups as they sprint on difficult problems. It's great for solopreneurs or for teams of any size, really from small startups to Fortune 100 companies. It's good for teachers and nonprofits too. There's a little bit of, you know, something for everyone in here. So head on over to our blog, revisionpath.com forward slash blog to see the giveaway post or hit us up on Facebook on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash revisionpath and click the giveaway tab. So you can enter um, in either place. The giveaway ends on March 4th and I'll announce the winner on next week's episode. Now for this week's episode, or this week's interview rather, I talked with industrial designer Ben Lindo. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Ben Lindo, and I'm an industrial designer. So for those that are listening, that I mean, we normally here on the show will interview web designers and graphic designers and UI, UX designers, etc. What exactly is industrial design for those that are listening? Uh, so I'll, uh, I'll kind of preface it as I do when I'm talking to students. Uh, I visit a lot of high school. So say, uh, take a minute and think about the things you see every day. So everything in this world was designed by somebody, right? As a designer, what I do is help bring ideas to life. Specifically as an industrial designer, it's the service of creating products from ideas while playing close attention to the appearance the way something functions and the way it feels. So a lot of times those objects could be, you know, anything from glasses to cell phones to sneakers, anything that you see in this world. Industrial designers pretty much do. It's a really broad field. So 
it's definitely fun, I'll say. Yeah, it does sound like it's a broad field. Actually, it reminds me kind of what I tell people when they ask about design and why it's important from a diversity standpoint. The first thing I usually say is that everything in this world has passed through some lens of design, whether it's the chair you're sitting in or the car you're driving or something like that. And like you said, the industrial designer is the person that really brings that idea to life. Right. How did you first get involved with industrial design? What drew you to it? <laughs> it's actually funny. So growing up, you know, it's me and my brothers. My mom would take us to the uh, barber shop, and, you know, we'd run around and everything. And in order for us to stop wrestling, she'd say, you know, uh, I need you guys to kind of sit down and just draw me something. So, you know, it just mm-hmm. started. It started, you know, really from me drawing. Fast forward, you know, I guess around like sixth grade, I was going to Saturday morning art classes, and I was the only one of my brothers to really stick with art. So naturally, here in Philadelphia, there's this one high school you go to, similar to, you've seen the movie Fame, or you go mm-hmm. for like, so it's like that, it's the Philadelphia version. It's Kappa, or Creative and Performing Arts. So I went there for visual arts. And throughout that entire time, you know, four-year experience in high school, first, I, you know, going to high school for something that you like to do, and then now you're graded on that can make you hate it really fast, but <laughs> it'll also allow you to figure out, is this something that you really want to stick with? And as we begin to approach, I'll say senior year, you know, at that time, it's like, you know, what are you going to do next? And, you know, my mom, it was never a thing where we had to go to college. It was figure out something that you like to do and do that. And hopefully, you know, in whatever you choose, figure out how you make money at doing that as well. University of Arts had come and they started talking about different majors in design and they talked about like graphic design and fashion and stuff like that. And I, did, I wasn't really interested in doing graphic design. Typically, when you think of, well, what could I apply this to? It's like architecture, but I figured, you know, maybe I get bored doing buildings and homes and possibly interiors. And I remember they, they showed maybe like four or five images on just like car stock it was a hamburger a book bag a car a cell phone and a skateboard and i was like oh this is industrial design but they didn't go into what it was at all you know and then they start talking about all the the conventional design uh careers that people typically know of and you know i went home and started looking it up and i was like maybe maybe i I do want to try this i started applying to different schools and, and i think what really got me to I think make that leap into going towards that direction, knowing that most people, even I'll say to this day, some people in my family still don't really know what industrial design is. Um, <laughs> but I figure it just, again, all the images that they show me, it's like, you know what, this seems really broad. I feel like I can't get bored at doing this. And then a lot of times when I'd have like family members or like friends of like, oh, you know, you go to Kappa, which was a high school I went to. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I go there for art. And they'd say, Oh, I used to draw. And it's like, so what do you do now? And it was never oh. <laughs> anything related. It was never anything re- related in the sense of like being really creative, you know? And it's like, uh-huh. oh, well, I'm a tractor trailer driver or, you know, I, I'm a nurse or I do this and I do that. But it was never anything really related to what I kind of define as this, you know, talent or hobby that you really used to enjoy to do. And you never really turned it into a career where was that really a possibility so yeah. I figure, you know, I could at least try and see where it goes. If it didn't work out, then <laughs> I figure something else out. But uh figure at least to try, you know. Why do you think it is that sort of like you said, you know, as, as when you're a kid and you're younger and you are drawing and, and doing stuff like that, why do you think it is that people don't necessarily connect that to an actual profession that they can do and like make a career out of? Well, I, I think generally we kind of grow up with that idea of even just let's say the idea of one just being successful right and typically those jobs that we tend to define as successful as a doctor a lawyer you know and just a lot of the conventional careers and i think typically depending on like the background like i know in my family there's you know really nobody who pursued any sort of i'll say artistic career in that sense Mm -hmm. so a lot of times if you just don't have that and you're not exposed to that you don't really see that on your radar as an opportunity. So for me, I think with a lot of things, almost universally, it's exposure and opportunity. If you're not exposed to it, you don't know you have that opportunity. 
and luckily I think almost forcibly but you know my mom didn't really I don't think she really knew I guess the long-term effects of having me sit down and draw to you know me being able to get into the high school I went to and being exposed to again a lot of the different areas within arts and design and you know being exposed to you arts just coming and talking about or at least showing images of industrial design for me to go forward and and look at that. So you ended up going to Philadelphia University after you you graduated and you you majored in industrial design. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Talk to me kind of about what the program was like there, because not only did you go there for undergraduate, you went there for graduate school also. Yes. So, and starting out, I guess after applying to several different schools and finally deciding to uh, go for industrial design. Philadelphia University actually gave me more money, so it made it easier. <laughs> hey, I, I feel you. I so, feel you. <laughs> then, but then the second part of that, though, too, as far as like the funding aspect of it, it's like, well, I had to work in order to go to school. So mm-hmm. with that, you know, I was working at like Blockbuster, and for a while I actually had two jobs, Blockbuster, and then I started working at UPS and going to school. So and starting out, you know, it's kind of the general program where first year it's kind of everyone kind of just uh, it's mixed up in the design classes. So uh, it's more like the foundations uh, side of it. And I guess within my family, I was the first in my household to start college. Mm-hmm. Um, my older brother, he actually was in the military. And then it wasn't until like my second year that he got out and he enrolled into uh, college. So it was like really new for me, you know, and mm-hmm. having to work and go to school was extremely rough it was tiring and just a lot of different people in my family who'd say stick with it you know you you know definitely go to school and it's like well this is rough you didn't do it so how are you able to kind of tell me you know whether or not this is something I should go with you know so it was rough starting out and also like my second or second semester of first year my stepfather passed away so that kind of uh, made it even tougher and even just figuring out whether or not Finishing school was something I really wanted to do at the mm-hmm. time, um, as far as just the distraction. But um, over time, you know, I was able to kind of move through that. When I started into the actual uh, industrial design program after the second year, which is after the foundations, I noticed, you know, kind of looking around that I was the only African American in my program. And, you know, after kind of done with that for a few years, I began to also, you know, notice that, okay, I was the only African-American in my program. None of my teachers looked like me. Nobody we studied in design history looked like me. And I think it was there uh, where I began to kind of discover what seemed to be a boundary between, like, me and my future, you know. Because for some it just in my head, I felt like, you know, if there's nobody else here that looks like me, there's either a reason why we're not doing this, or I guess, you know, we're just not allowed to or something. And I began to kind of think, well, in conventional, by conventional definition, you know, I had a pretty good job. I was working at UPS at that time now. I was driving. So it's like, well, if I do graduate, at least I'll have a degree and, you know, I have a pretty good job. I can become like a manager and stuff. I guess uh, just dealing with like a lot of different people and sometimes even instructors, I'd kind of get uh, comments like, well, you know, you need to quit your job. You come to class, your eyes are red. You, you look tired a lot. And, you know, I, I did have a crazy schedule, but, you know, a lot of times it was just I had to do what I had to do to get in class like UPS. So I had to wake up at 4 a.m. I had to catch the first uh, local train to South Philly to start work at 6 a.m. And I'd work from uh, 6 to about 12.30 and I had to be to class by around like 1.30 and then depending on the day, I'd be in class until 11 o'clock at night. And so a lot of times, you know, it really didn't leave me too much time to sleep. So there have been times I had to do like two or three days of kind of just staying up, you know, in order to try to get work done or actually just to complete anything. I remember mornings where I'd literally, I'd pick the truck up from South Philly and to get into Center City is where my area was. I'd have to riot with like both doors open and like yell like random things just to keep myself awake (laughs) until I got to my first stop. And then, you know, it was like I'm on foot, I'm carrying stuff. So I was pretty, I was good. You know, again, just after a while, 
it's seeming like uh, a lot of just like different limitations and instructors saying things to me like, oh, I understand you, you know, you have to work. And I was like, well, they'll say like, you need to quit your job. I was like, well, if I quit my job, I can't go to school. And then, you know, I'd get responses like, well, I understand you have mouths to feed. I was like, when did I ever say I had kids? What? So it was just like things like that where it became really discouraging. Um, yeah. I think like personally though, too, even like knowing, you know, just different people in my family is like, okay, I'm like the first to kind of go through college is like, I didn't want to be the one that I started it and I didn't finish it. And, you know, thinking like, well, how much of this is really just normal? You know, how much of it is just maybe the field that I chose? It's just kind of, if it's like this in school, will it be like that, you know, after graduating though too? And I begin to figure out, you know, do I need to look at changing majors and things like that? And, you know, after so many comments like that, one day I literally decided to uh, Google black industrial designer just to see what came up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's crazy because even I think to this day for you to Google black industrial designer, not much comes up. And one guy's, you know, among a few others kept coming up. His name was Noel Mayo. And I went through a, a series of I kind of felt like a stalker because <laughs> uh, in a sense of a lot of the research I did do, because his name kept popping up in a lot of different articles or initiatives that he ran at, like, uh, say, OSU or things that he had designed and contacted at one point a guy by the name of Eric Anderson, who's uh, teaching at Carnegie Mellon. And he had his office line and I called him up and I started talking to him and I asked him, you know, hey, by the way, you know, do you know Noel Mayo? And he was like, oh, yeah, I actually just saw him, you know, like last week. I let him know. Next time I see him or talk to him, you know, that, you know, you're trying to get in touch with him. And he had given me the information to another teacher at OSU who then put me in touch with Noel in the sense of I had gotten his office line, but it was never connected to an answering machine. So... Mm-hmm. Reminds you again, I'm working at UPS. I'd literally hurry up, deliver everything that I had to deliver and call this guy every single day. And it would just ring and ring and ring. <laughs> and one day, and this is like after a few weeks, so that's when it's like, that's when I felt kind of stalkerish and kind of crazy. One day, someone picked up and they were like, I'll transfer you back to him. It's like, oh, perfect. So I'm like, my heart's beating. I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about what I was going to say. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so he gets on the line, we start talking, and End up just telling them everything. You know, I was like the only um, student in my program that was African-American. And if he had time at some point just to kind of talk. And he mentioned that he actually frequents uh, Philly. He, he visits often. And I was like, well, hey, um, next time you come, would it be possible if we met up? And he said, yeah, I'll give you, you know, he gave me a cell phone number and everything. And he's like, you know, I'll be here in, you know, so many weeks. And we'll schedule it then. So I'm like, all right, cool. You know, so uh, finally that day comes. And I remember on the uh, the train ride over, uh, actually, I guess I can go back though too, for those who don't know who Noel Mayo is, but too, so he was the first African-American to um, get a degree in design from UArts, which I was originally a fit off the College of Arts. Uh, he was the first African-American chair of a design department. And he also started the first african-american design firm in the u.s and it happened to be in philly so that was like the thing to me where it was just like oh my gosh this is like storybook and i got in touch with this guy you know i remember on the train ride over being just extremely nervous you know and like one just what i could research about him online and who he was and what he's done and the whole time like you know i kept telling myself you know i'd be I'm happy if this guy just gives me 10 minutes. Like, I feel like it would just be therapeutic. You know, I'd be able to get through school, like whatever, you know. And we finally met and we talked for four hours. <laughs> and it was like amazing for me because it's like, I think the conversation stopped only because he had to go pick his wife up from the airport. But mm-hmm. I remember with that, I bought over, you know, a stack of sketches, uh, 3D prints and just uh, different projects and things I had done. And we talked about almost everything. And at one point he kind of asked me, I was like, well, how do you get work done? And I told him, you know, cause given my schedule and how I worked and he was saying how, you know, crazy it was and just that I had gotten as much done as I could. And at one point then he told me to, uh, or he asked me how much would it take, how much money would it take for me to quit 
my job and just concentrate on school. And he was like, you know, maybe I, you know, I can talk to some friends. We'll all throw in some money or, and you can quit your job, but you know, don't, don't hold me to it. You know, I'll, I'll be back in two weeks. We'll meet again and kind of go from there. So two weeks goes by and in the midst of that, he was like, you know, calculate all your monthly bills, whatever your expenses are. I mean, this is like everything down from, you know, me paying my loans, just all the expenses that I had, even up to, you know, calculating healthcare. Cause that was like a big thing too. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, with UPS, it was like calculating that side. And, you know, we met in, uh, two weeks later and um, after a conversation and at the end of it, he was like, oh, by the way, you can quit your job. And I received a check from him every month all the way up until I graduated. And that's how I really, if it wasn't for meeting him, that's the only way I think I would have really, one, just stayed in design, you know. And I think even with receiving that as a benefit though too it's just it was huge for me and i remember and and talking about well if this happens you know though too and he told me it's like you know if you accept this part of it is a complete chain turnaround you know if the teachers ask you for three things do you are presenting 10 and the other part of that was you know depending on whenever the deadline was i had to have all that stuff done and completed to send to him to review before i could even show it in class so talk about like being on a grind, like that's when, you know, I thought, you know, it was hard enough with, you know, working and going to school before meeting him. And on to some extent, it like really prepared me for, I think, receiving that again, just, you know, as a blessing to continue and through to school. Wow. So <laughs> That's a hell of a story. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm just. There, there's so much that I want to ask just from all of that. I think the first thing that that sticks out to me the most, of course, is kind of the, the generosity of Dr. Mayo to not only take his time out to, to meet with you and talk with you, but to also then kind of rally other, you know, designers and friends of his around the cause of helping you succeed. That is that is amazing. Right. And I think even like now and thinking about it though too and even when i talk to him i always say like you know i'm not trying to be annoying but you know just thank you again (laughs) because it's just like i mean this is like years later but it's just like i think about you know how like monumental that was i think in uh, propelling it forward and i think one of the biggest things again is just inspiring confidence you know it was like Mm -hmm. somebody who one believed in me you know more than i know that I did not believe in myself as much as I think that he did. And the, I think the other side of it, though, too, is for him not to know me at yeah. all. Like, And I was some kid who contacted him, <laughs> you know, found him online and just called him up a cold call one day. And I remember uh, even, like, having a conversation with him one time. He said, apparently, I was the only person who's ever done that, who's ever, like, I guess, like, sought him out and just randomly contacted him. You know, mm-hmm. to kind of just talk. And I remember for a long time as well, it's like, uh, you know, with him doing that, even having like doubt. So go, just going back to inspiring confidence, where after a lot of stuff that I went through in school, feeling out like I wasn't good enough, you know, it wasn't anything, you know, to do with, you know, my race or anything like that. I kept thinking, like, oh, it's, I'm just not good at design at mm-hmm. all. And, I think, again, just in, in meeting him, you know, for a while, it was just, you know, does he just feel really bad for me and wants to help me out, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, over time, it's just like, you know, no, it's like, you know, you, you are good. You know, a lot of the, the things that you think that about your own, yourself, you know, a lot of times hold you back. So a lot of it is really, you know, uh, as you go through things, almost moving beyond yourself or your own person. To sometimes to move towards you know that confidence space and I know it definitely meant a lot to me and I think even every day you know and receiving the projects that I do you know and it's, a lot of times it's like you've never designed anything until you actually design it so <laughs> even from moving specifically say different types of products you know someone you know I say I've never if I've never designed a table before you know it isn't until I actually design a table that I can actually say I've designed it and that goes for everyone so sometimes even that fear of like, oh, no, like I've never done this before. Am I going to be able to do this? You know, I always tend to kind of think back to like my past and I still hold that, you know, with me to this day to kind of continue 
I guess the maintenance side of, you know, confidence and kind of just getting through things and, you know, knowing that I do have the aptitude to, you know, learn essentially. Yeah. Wow. It's, (laughs) (laughs) I think the, the other amazing thing about it, aside from just, you know, the, the financial generosity is kind of also this, this level of mentorship and critique, Mm -hmm. because like you said, you had to, if your instructors told you, you had to do three things, you had to do 10 and then run them by him before you submitted them. So there's like also that level of not necessarily peer review, but certainly that critique to let you know whether you're going along uh, the right track. Right. Right. And that was, you know, extremely valuable uh, too. And I think given as for those, you know, when you you think back to the, the classroom setting and the way like the critiques went and even I think kind of going back to, some of the uh, responses or reactions that I got from even sometimes with the teachers and trying to divide that from was any of that or how much of it was, we'll say, influenced in any way by certain prejudices versus realistically design and ensuring that I met specific requirements and stuff, though, too. So that was that was always uh, interesting, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense because it, it sounds like, and I, I mean, I don't say this to to put down the department at Philadelphia University. But your professors kind of sounded like some jerks. Yeah. <laughs> they really did. And, and again, this is not, you know, like you said, from a, a racial standpoint, I think the thing that probably stands out to me the most is it's more of a privilege standpoint. Like for them to tell you, oh, just quit your job yeah. and, and focus on school. Like that's an option, yeah. which is probably not an option for a lot of students, whether you have scholarship or not i know even though like for example i went to to morehouse for undergrad and i had a full scholarship but i still had to work as i was still broke yeah you know i was still a broke college student even though my my education was being paid for that didn't mean that i still didn't have to to work right you know to get other things you know it's not like i'm living like a monk or something like that (laughs) and and i guess just like those those discouraging comments from faculty i'm interested to know if i guess after Dr. Mayo really started helping you out in terms of critique and, you know, also financially, did those comments from faculty change? Like, did they see now that you were able to put more of an effort into your work and did their perception of you change? Well, so part of that, though, too, in receiving benefit from Dr. Mayo was, you know, you don't tell anybody. The thing is, all they're going to do is see you like you're in the studio all the time. You're, you know, producing Uh more work than what was needed or asked for. And I remember, you know, I, I stayed with that until one day we had gotten a project and it was, so my senior thesis, since I worked at UPS and delivering, I, I was very much tied to that. I knew a lot about it. I decided to do a project uh, where I essentially designed a mobile device for delivery packages, but for bike messengers. Cause that was one thing I noticed they didn't they were still at the time using like the Nextel chirp phones and clipboards, you know, and pieces of paper. Um, so and doing that, we had a project. It was like I had to uh, design it. Or what would it be if it was due tomorrow? So we had to come up with, you know, what that looked like, you know, who was targeted to and really kind of play this out and have that really nice shot. And I think a lot of it was just to help people really jumpstart and, and getting their work done so we didn't fall behind. And I remember at the time I had gotten in touch with a principal designer at Motorola who said they were like, help me out. And they were interested in um, the the concept and the sense of just serving as like an advisor as well as I was working through things and could send them, you know, my work for feedback and and stuff like that. So, you know, I designed this thing. I, I had like Motorola logos on it. And I remember doing this critique, like being like, it was ripped apart. And mind you, again, this was something that I had to send to Dr. Mayo before, you mm-hmm. know, it was ever shown. And it was like just ripped apart. And from the point of, it's like, well, why do you have Motorola logos on it? I was like, well, actually, I'm in touch with one of the uh, principal designers there. And he said, you know, I could send them, you know, things for feedback. And I was like, well, do you even have an advisor going, walking you through, through any of this process? I was like, yes, I do. And I was like, uh, and there's like, well, who, who is that? Who is it? Like, oh, it's uh, Noel Mayo. And they kind of like the instructor just kind of stopped and got really silent and looked and was like, well, <laughs> how, 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 do, how do you know him? 
and stuff. And I was like, all I said was like, I had met him. That was the extent of what I said. And I remember uh-huh. later that day, it had been about like three or four different instructors had come up to me and my, they were not even in this class. And I remember one said, Oh, so, uh, heard you, you, um, you got in contact with Noel. I was like, Oh yeah, I, I have. He's like, Oh, you know, I actually, he was my teacher when I went to UART or Philadelphia College of Arts, you know, way back in, I think it was probably like the 80s when that one instructor went. And I'm thinking in my head, this is funny because no one has ever talked about him before, but clearly everyone knows who he is. And I, it was like another instructor who came up and was like, so what do you, you, you get in touch with black designers on your free time? I was like, what? Oh, yeah, what? it was just like crazy stuff like that. Jesus. You know, and I think that's, again... It was a little bitter and stuff as far as like the, <laughs> just the experience and stuff. But I remember the day it was for the final presentation. I guess not the presentation, but the show, the senior show. We had it downtown Center City and Design Center. And uh, months before I asked Dr. May, I was like, these are the dates. If you can make it, you know, it'd be great. Because I, I wasn't sure if it would actually fell within his uh, normal schedule when he would be in Philly for doing his consultant work and end up lining up, which was good. And I remember the day he came, I met him outside. We walk in to the design center and like my family's there. We're walking through and I'm kind of walking him through and I'm showing him like, you know, my setup and the other uh, students works and, and things like that. And I remember like different faculty, like coming up to me and just like people that I hadn't even known, like coming up to talk to me just so they could talk to him. And it's like wow. even a lot of the people who were like jerks <laughs> to me or a lot of things that they said, it was, you know, just, I think, discouraging, though, too. It was like, you know, they were like totally different people, <laughs> you know, in front uh-huh. of them, though, too. So and the other thing, though, too, that was the only that was the only time I ever got an A in design, too, as far as agreed. That was the only time I ever got an A in, in a design class. Wow. So and it was like. You know, it only took because it took me five years for a four year degree because I had to work. So it was just like, hey, it only took five years, but I got it. So, yeah, you got it. Yeah. That's that's what counts. So, yeah. One other thing that stands out, I guess, from your story, aside from, I guess, the general kind of behavior of the professors is you mentioned earlier that none of them were black professors or were any of them professors of color at all, like Asian Hispanic, anything like that? No, no. And I, I think that the thing, though, too, is I think in talking about it, like sometimes it's just like, um, like I've brought it up to like other people because there's like people I was in class with where they never noticed that it, one, I was the only black student there. Uh-huh. But then I also remember them starting to notice how certain professors would be really hard on me with certain mm-hmm. things. And I also remember talking about like certain grades that I had gotten. They thought it was like I was playing around and, you know, it wasn't believable and stuff. So, you know, and I don't know how much of it is when you're not used to being around, you know, people that look like you, how, you know, certain behaviors can tend to change and maybe realistically just not being aware of the the damage of what one is saying to another uh-huh. or um, how it could definitely be, we'll say, perceived or interpreted. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, I always just try to give the benefit of the doubt. And I, I think even in today's society in terms, it's like when things happen, we don't immediately go to, this happened because I was black. You know, it's like, right. no, you know, there's got to be another reason. And I think, again, you're talking about like building insecurities. Um, for me specifically, that led to a lot of it, you know, because I thought, again, it's clearly it's something that I'm doing. That's the reason why, you know, either I'm getting these grades or I'm not getting this specific opportunity. And it isn't, you know, a lot of times until that's all of those possibilities, right, are exhausted. And like, well, the only other thing that it can be, and given, you know, some of the things that were explicitly said, this has to be what it is, you know, and then seeing how the treatment between say me and say you know some of my classmates how that ranges even in conversation Mm -hmm. and stuff and i think it's interesting because i i remember it was like one instructor who i remember he pulled me aside i I think he kind of understood or saw some of what was going on and i remember him telling me like oh you know i think you're going to do 
do well, you know, in design. Like you, you don't look threatening, you know, you're handsome and, and this, this and that. And, <laughs> and I was like, I remember like thinking it when it first happened, I was like, why would you say something? Like, why would you why tell would me you that? Why would you say that? But then, oh my in a, like, God. a weird, like, twisted way though too, is as if I think he genuinely felt that he was providing and really helping me or providing words of encouragement. Like, you know, oh, you can make it. But just <laughs> in a different way. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, though, too, was came into play when <laughs> I decided to go back there for graduate school. And Oh, that's right. You did. You went you were part of the uh, strategic design MBA program. Correct. And so during that time of undergrad, since it took me the five years, I had to drop. I remember a, one of my design classes. So I was a year behind in that sequence. So in order to fill that space, I would still retain full-time status because I got more aid that way. I minored in business. And it wasn't until then I found out, like, I really did. I was genuinely interested in the business side of things. It also helped that I was getting hired grades and, like, all of my, like, economics classes and accounting classes than I was getting in design. So that was the other thing where I was like, maybe I probably, you know, at one point thought I should switch majors. But um, uh, when it came down to, um, I think at this point I'd gotten my second job. So like today I'm working at SouthCal. They gave uh, some money towards going back to school. Um, And part of me in taking this job here was if I take this job, I want to go back to school, especially since they're paying for for a a great portion of it. So I began looking around and um, I didn't want to go for design specifically because I felt like I already did that in undergrad. So I decided to pursue uh, something in the uh, the business side of things. And just given the experience that I had professionally, that I thought that would be really, really good. And one, just a good opportunity, or I guess good at uh, creating additional opportunities within the career. So I started looking around at schools. And one of the things, though, too, I wanted it also to be convenient as far as uh, like meeting schedules and one, if I had to physically be in class, how that would be. I wasn't really uh, interested in doing anything online either. But, um, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> when I went uh, to apply, I remember like a lot of family members. Um, and even like, so uh, my wife, though, too, she was my girlfriend at the time in college. But there's just a lot of people concerned about me going back there because of just the experience that I had there. For me, it was kind of like, uh, I felt like I was better equipped if I did have to deal with something like that, that, you know, if anything, I could say when I made it as a designer, like I'm actually employed and have been employed as a designer, whether or not I think for myself, it was, you know, that confidence side of things, like almost testing that It's like, if I had to go back through something like that again, would I really be able to get through it and end up being a totally different experience, actually an amazing experience. And I think one of the things, though, too, with the SDMBA program or Strategic Design MBA program that really differentiated itself from a lot of the other programs I looked at was the creative component of it being based off of uh, the design thinking model in comparison to uh, most traditional MBAs where I thought, you know, it's going to be pretty linear. And I guess going back to the whole thing, of I thought it would be boring (laughs) if I went the traditional route and going through the, the design pro, uh, the SEMBA program, it was amazing and I think definitely helped on tailor my thinking today about just solving problems and in a practical way, realistic and creative. And yeah, it's definitely, uh, I can say it was a different experience. <laughs> so one that I, I could definitely advertise freely about. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Someone else that I interviewed for the show Glenette Clark, who was uh, episode 33, she also did the strategic design. And I think she was in the year after you, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And yeah. It, so and that was funny, though, too, because I remember actually after speaking with you, I think the, when we first uh, spoke and going through uh, just some of the interviews, I saw Glenette. I was like, oh, there she, she goes. I ended up listening <laughs> to her. And it was interesting because she said when she was looking at programs, among just the things I mentioned about how it was uh, described as far as the curriculum or coursework, that one of the things that drew her to that was that she saw there were students that looked like her in the program. Yeah. And I'm sure she was talking like uh, uh, me and uh, Terry Birch, because <laughs> when we started, we were the first class through. So it was like, you know, 
one one African American guy and female. So and blazing a trail. Yeah, and but it's like again, you know, a lot of the things that we kind of take for granted, as I kind of mentioned, you know, it's kind of like you can't uh, see it, you can't believe it, though, too, and how much of that is almost related to it. You know, it's just like seeing that. I think that we were there. You know that. You know, this is something that one would be inviting, though, too. But in a sense of, I think a lot of times, just I think in our community, sometimes with regard to education and you know even continuing education, though, too, it's just like there's so many layers and levels to that. And I don't know, it was just interesting when I heard that, though, too, because you know, it's a lot of times it's things that I think outwardly we don't always admit, but it's like you do notice, and not that you specifically look for that when you make decisions, but it's very helpful. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it, I think it just factors into part of, of our decision-making process, particularly because we may end up having to deal with certain microaggressions and things of that nature that, you know, can detract from what should be, uh, on a base level, a pretty okay experience. You know, if, if you're going into a space and you feel, or you can look and see that you would be the only person of color, you're like, well, what kind of, what, what am I going to have to put up with? Yeah. None of the faculty are people of color. None of the students are people of color. Is it worth it to kind of be twice as good or better mm-hmm. and put up with the slings and the arrows to right. you know to get to the end goal? And you know, for some people, that's okay. For others, it's not. And I mean, everyone has you know kind of different levels of dealing with with that. But I think it also speaks to the point where you have to wonder: is that something that you have to put up with? Yeah, and. It was uh, interesting, though, too, because even think about it more, another layer of that. So Glenette saw Terry and I as, you know, students in the program online because our profiles are there. <clears throat> and I remember in looking at the program, the program director, Natalie Nixon, is African-American. And, you know, specifically given the experience that I had during undergrad, I think one of the comforting aspects of it though too other than just the genuine interest in the program and the curriculum and you know just the coursework and things that would be covered was I saw that she was heading this program and it was like wow you know this is a lady who's clearly accomplished and doing things and she's allowed to do it there at Philadelphia University so you know or she made it to that level as well so it's like it made me feel more confident secure and not necessarily being worried about the experience that I went through during undergrad, though, too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't think enough people really factor in that emotional component that goes into education. That it's not just academic rigor mm-hmm. or physical rigor that you're putting up with. That a, a, a lot of times there is often a big emotional component to it as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, just to you know, I want to switch gears a little bit because we, we focused a lot on on your educational experience and, and that story still is is <laughs> amazing. Talk to me about the work that you're doing now at South Co. Like, what's a typical day like for you? <laughs> Running around doing a lot of things. So at South Co. Um, actually, I started doing. Uh, I was a 3D CAD designer, so I actually got the job doing uh, 3D CAD work. So just modeling and drafting. The job I actually had before this was at a uh, company, Zenith Products, where I was doing consumer goods and housewares and home decor items for Target, Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, Bed Bath Beyond, uh, Office Depot, things like that. So that was, you know, the general, the normal products that people, when you think of products and you see them in the store, that's that's what I used to design. And and coming here, I got the job doing 3D CAD work essentially, and. Because I had a background in design um, and meeting a lot of the engineering and working with a lot of the engineering teams here, a lot of times they'd say, you know, I can figure out how it works, you know, but it just looks ugly. You have a background in design, you know, maybe sometime I can get you in on, uh, you know, just get your opinion on on a couple things and maybe, you know, just have you work on some some projects. And that's how it started. I've been here three years so far. And after the second year then I was promoted where they actually created a position uh, for me here as an industrial designer so Mm. here I'm the only industrial designer out of 3,000 employees globally wow so globally wow (laughs) so that you know it comes with a a lot of responsibility and uh, juggling supporting all of our regions from with design needs too 
So from uh, the UK to Asia to, you know, the Americas, which are North and South America. So, you know, any day, you know, I can be working with, you know, our partners in Pune on something um, and mm-hmm. maybe even start a project and I go to sleep, they finish it next morning, you know, so it's almost like it's continuous. So it's ranging from anything from uh, really styling to uh, ergonomics, because um, a lot of the parts that we do, uh, say like electronic access or positioning controls, which are, you've seen medical carts, so the arms that the monitors are mounted to. So there's several applications. Yeah. We do a lot for uh, the transportation industry, so so it's automobile, marine, so boats, uh, aerospace, railway, off-highway, which we consider uh, being the construction vehicles, and ATVs, like the, a lot of the all-terrain vehicles. So I like to say in explaining the products that we design, we design things that go into other stuff. So uh, we say touch points, right? So it's the, we're designing a thing that connects the person to the product. So for one example, you know, in the Chrysler uh, 300s, we designed the uh, mechanism for the glove box latch or center consoles for, or center console latches for say the Mustangs or Jeep Cherokees and a headrest for, for the seat rest on the head for uh, Mercedes Benz. Or the, the uh, holders for so a lot of new uh, Audis, when you purchase them, they come with their own version of like an iPad, and we design the mounts for those that plug into the back seat. So it's definitely it's a broad range of products because there's so many different applications. And it's funny though too because uh, now that I'm designing a lot of the products that Southco creates, I tend to pay attention to a lot more. <laughs> too, which is interesting. My wife thinks mm-hmm. I'm crazy anyway because I'm like looking in the car. I was like, oh, I think we did that latch there, or or you see that uh, little captive screw? That's that's ours. So, but yeah, typical day though. Again, is um, I'll get a request uh, through our uh, computer system and kind of work on it. A lot of it's like feedback going through different channels, either through um, you know, it's specifically with an engineer, sometimes manufacturing, if there's manufacturing changes in something that we're producing. There's times where I'll get uh, notifications for me to work on something where essentially sometimes it's uh, almost like putting out fires. So I come in at so many different points of development process. Sometimes it's at the initial phase, right? So initial concepts so of everything's still being developed. Whereas other times it's, you know, we've already met with the customer they love what we designed in a sense of how it functions, but they don't like the way it looks. So is there anything that we can do? And then I'll kind of take over and propose uh, several designs working with product managers, project managers, the engineering team, and manufacturing. So it's definitely uh, really integrated as far as the collaboration process um, with a lot of the different departments. So, And then me being the only one, I end up getting exposed to a lot of different uh, people and personality types we'll say so that's one, that's one of the biggest things though too as far as uh like managing relationships though too and i think kind of going back to just with the education aspect of it specifically with uh, uh my graduate studies since that I, I finished in 2014 with design thinking a lot of times using the design thinking process and managing our relationships with people and knowing that I'm dealing with so many different departments and developing, you know, the end goal is develop this product, but there's so many different steps and people who handle certain aspects of it that, you know, one of the biggest things that I have to remember throughout that process is empathy, you know, because a lot of times people, it's hard to see beyond your, the, uh, beyond the edges of your own desk, you know? Mm-hmm. So if you're the designer, a lot of times I'll say, all you focus on is what it looks like and, in the end, it looks pretty. Or, you know, if you're an engineer, you're just making sure that this thing functions correctly and we can manufacture this. And, you know, you got manufacturing over here. And I really have to make sure that, you know, this thing can be manufactured. And you have the project manager and product manager, you know, worrying about costs. Like, is this too expensive? Yeah. Or are we going to pull costs out of it? So a lot of times I think, you know, just being able to put myself in other people's shoes to understand what is it that they want and almost serving as, I think, that bridge between everything because a lot of these things that are at play, I have to visually communicate that into a product in the end. Yeah. 
So for people that are listening who might be interested in learning more about industrial design or getting into the field, what would you recommend in terms of resources? So there's a uh, core flow and uh, core 77, as far as just an uh, IDSA, those are certain things that you can websites that you can look up of uh, active designers though too, and portfolios just to kind of see how broad of a field it is and the different areas that you can apply uh, one design to, I guess, additional resources. There's also the organization of black designers though too, I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> There's always uh, LinkedIn as well, too, and being able to find uh, a lot of designers and just reaching out. I mean, that's what I did uh, with Noel. Yeah, I was going to say, that's what you too. did. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, Google is your friend. But, uh, you yeah. know, just knowing this, the search terms, starting with, you know, industrial design or industrial designer, you know, you'll see how that is. That's just the door you walk through. <laughs> it opens up mm-hmm. from there. It gets even broader. I want to switch gears again and talk more about you personally. Specifically, I want to talk about mentorship because the the main thing that I get from the stories, for the story that you've told so far, is how really seeking out that mentorship of Dr. Mayo really kind of helped transform your your educational path mm-hmm. to to get where you are now. Talk to me kind of about that importance of of mentorship for you. Do you also kind of pay that forward as well now? Yes. Yeah, so I'm actually a board of two schools. One. Uh, the Charter High School for Architecture and Design in Philadelphia, and another school, Jubilee School. I'll say specifically with uh, the Charter High School of uh, Architecture and Design, or CHAD, as most people call it. Uh, one, being on the board, part of you know just my duties as a board member, one, to uh, helping with you know, essentially decision-making processes. But the other side of it, though, too, is meeting with a lot of the students in the classrooms. So they actually are exposed to design from graphic to fashion to interior um, design, but just a lot of times showing up, talking about what I do, and them seeing me there in the sense of, I, I say I still look young enough to, it doesn't seem like it's like their mom or dad talking to them <laughs> when I come. So I, I kind of look at it as I can still kind of play or fit into that groove of, looking like or being like the older cousin or brother and talking to them and still being, you know, not that far out of, or at least I think in my head, not that far out of, you know, school um, uh-huh. that, you know, just talking about my experience and even, you know, just being from Philly and going to public school and stuff like that. So many different uh, similarities. I see how beneficial just a story can be or the benefit of just talking to somebody can be. So I, I actively try to make sure I'm always involved in things like that, as well as the STEM program. So at Southco here, which I think is extremely impressive, whereas, you know, you have a lot of companies who talk about outreach and, um, you know, the future of, say, designers or engineers, and they're really doing it. You know, it's we I actually run a lot of the tours with uh, my coworkers where we're, you know, talking about design and engineering, manufacturing taking them, you know, on a tour through our manufacturing facilities where they're seeing things actually being made, you know, robots putting things together and just getting kids and just people exposed to, you know, just opportunities. It's definitely huge for me in that. And sometimes I I think I signed up for too many things, but, you know, given (laughs) just what I've experienced though too and how valuable it is, you know, I, it's a really hard time to ever turn down when, someone, you know, brings it up or tells me about an opportunity to show up for a career day or a STEM tour. I was actually at another high school last week, uh, Bartram. And, you know, it's like even a lot of teachers have never heard of industrial design. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just think it's important. Again, it's like the faster we can get people exposed, especially at younger ages, you know, it'll help you see more of, you know, the options that you do have and not just, you know, always the conventional ones that we hear of, which, you know, that's okay if that's what you want to do. But just knowing that there is so much more in this world than, you know, what typically is is known uh, up front. Yeah, just sort of broadens your horizons. Yeah. What's something important that you know now that you never learned in school? And this can be in middle school, high school, or even your time at Philadelphia University. I have to, (laughs) I have to go back to the I think in general, even like just personalized, just the, the empathy side of things, which I guess 
say at my older age, I'd begin to reflect on a lot of things, but just putting myself in other people's shoes, you know, and how universal that ability to empathize can be, you know, from, you know, say in the workplace, whereas, you know, we're all working up to meet, you know, a deadline and it's really critical that we, we meet this deadline. People are stressed out, but, you know, being able to still get through those instances of we'll call it creative abrasion <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and getting to it and uh, being able to kind of help set the tone or temperature to get through everything, you know? So I, I think for me, that's probably the biggest thing that I'm aware of now that I learned. I'll say that. Okay. What keeps you motivated? Like what inspires you? Wanting to continue the cycle of the inspiration that I got. That's the, you know, it's the more of us, you know, that can be inspired, the more people we have out there who are motivated to move forward. Are you satisfied creatively? Do you feel like with the work that you've done so far that you are, I guess, pretty satisfied? Yeah, I would say I'm definitely satisfied. I think (laughs) kind of going back again to to uh, the high school experience of uh, think about industrial design when they showed me those uh, few different pictures. It's like, uh, I don't think I'd ever get bored. That's come to pass, you know, from either subject matter, uh, specific projects that I've worked on, a lot of the detail that I went into products uh, or projects from the research end of it to the engineering and design and manufacturing side. But even, you know, just like the ability to travel to uh, different parts of the globe. You know, and yeah, so I can say I definitely feel satisfied and I can say so far I found what I've been looking for in the sense of not not getting to that point where I get bored, you know? Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the near future, like in the next five years or so? So uh, at some point I would like to uh, definitely start my own firm in full and not just as like doing consultants uh, work on the side, you know, or doing design work on the side. Definitely like to one day. Uh, just have my own. What do you think about like 3D printing and industrial design? Do you feel like that's sort of normalizing it a lot for people that may not specifically know about what industrial design is as a field? I think so because it it gives you, it allows, I think in talking about 3D printing to give it uh, where that's an application for. So in design, I think of, you know, industrial design, just designers in general, we're bringing ideas to life. So, you know, anything, you know, it starts as a sketch to say you put it in to 3D CAD and then you're 3D printing it though too. So I think, again, just it helps associate it to where it's applied and say a field like industrial design and so many other fields though too. But just as being a maker or creating almost something from nothing or we'll say stemming from an idea, it definitely helps normalize it in that sense, I think. Yeah, I, I've been seeing a lot more 3D printed products popping up all over the place at Kickstarter. I've seen it on Etsy. And it, it's ranged from things like housewares mm-hmm. to little knickknacks to even 3D printed shoes. Yeah, and it, like I've seen like the gamut of, of you know products that can be created. And with normalizing it, though, too, the, the benefit of that is it makes it that much more accessible. Whereas I remember before when... I'll say probably like in school and looking at how much 3D printers were to whereas now today you can get, you can go to uh, like Home Depot and they're selling 3D printers or Costco, you know, $200, that you can have a desktop 3D printer to, we'll say tinker, figure out, you know, you have an idea, you know, that's one thing that everybody has is ideas, you know, and having the resources to, and technology to be able to essentially bring that idea to life. You know, we think about, Things, uh, we'll say like trends within like social media types of, you know, say Instagram, right? So everybody's a photographer now. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you'll you'll hear or see articles. And I'm trying to remember where this one article was. And uh, there was an instructor. And he was also uh, for photography. And essentially talking about how now a lot of people, since they now have the tools and say, we'll say filters and things like that, almost anybody can be a photographer or people feel mm-hmm. as though they can but you know some of it's still learning a lot of the basic design principles though too about like composition and lighting but how technology has really afforded people access to being able to do this stuff which i think yeah. is awesome i remember i interned at 
Where was this? this is Marshall Space Flight Center. This was in 2001. Mm-hmm. Now I'm dating myself. Um, this is in 2001. <laughs> and I remember they had a 3D printer there. It was a big printer. I mean, it wasn't huge, like it took up the size of a room, but I remember it was a pretty large printer and they were printing out the nose piece cone that goes on the end of the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. They were like doing a, a simulation model or something of it. They were printing out. And I just remember being like blown away, like, you can print stuff in 3D? Are you serious? And then now, 15 years later, like you said, it's normal. You can pop down to Costco and buy a 3D printer and load up an AutoCAD file and print out something. Even seeing this this pen, it's called like a 3Doodler or 3D Doodler or something. You stick a piece of filament in the end of it, and then you can essentially like draw in 3D, like a little wire frame of something, which Mm -hmm. is just astonishing. It's amazing how far these advances have come in such a short amount of time. Yeah, and I I think back to my days at UPS, I used to deliver to um, Jewelers Row in Philly. So a lot of them, they were like either wholesalers or uh, manufacturers of jewelry. So they were doing castings and setting diamonds and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of times while I'm waiting for the packages, you know, I talk to everybody. And I remember a lot of times, like, you know, I deliver the packages, like, oh, you know, somehow we get on that, you know, I was in school for industrial design and they knew what it was. And they'd show me how a lot of the people who were designing jewelry, you know, from starting from wax, had it become, it started to become like a dying art where there weren't too many people doing that. And knowing how fragile these wax forms are for them to take and then cast, if you mess up, you, there's no control off the leap for that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you have to either rebuild that to, I remember, you know, them talking about like what the trend was going to be is like more and more, you know, being able to quickly 3D print these things and have several of them. And several iterations or variations of it without going through the entire process of, you know, I've, I've got to create these intricate wax forms again, you know, and I wasn't using the mold. So it's really interesting to see how it evolved for so many different applications that I think a lot of times, you know, we tend to kind of take for granted or, you know, just don't know about. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Ben, just to kind of wrap things up, I mean, my goodness, we've, we've talked about so much, but where can our audience find out more about you online and where can they like follow maybe some of the work that you're doing? <laughs> I guess it's a little bad, but uh, so really, I would say uh, mainly LinkedIn. Um, okay. Unfortunately, because I've been consumed with uh, just working most of the time, I don't actually post anything online as far as like uh, a portfolio, which I need to get on doing. So thank you for... <laughs> <laughs> for, for making sure that I do that. But uh, I'd say uh, LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. And I'll say the other tools, uh, schools that I'm uh, involved with, uh, with Chad, Charter High School for Architecture and Design on the board, and then uh, Jubilee School, which is also located in uh, Philadelphia. And I'm a, uh, I guess the, there's a scholarship fund, the Luther Vandross, or Luther and Mary Ida Vandross uh, scholarship. So I'm on the uh, committee for that as well. So if you have a chance and even a lot of listeners though too, to kind of just make different people that, you know, you know, if we're in school already aware of that, to look it up, you can find that at uh, philofun.org. Okay. And, but yeah, I, I know we do have a lot of students that listen, so that that's a good thing for them. And we, we give out uh, for that uh, five, $10,000 scholarships. Um, right now you can look up, uh, on the Philophon website though too, but, uh, the major criteria right now is, um, you have to be at, uh, or enrolled at a HBCU. So, and it starts in really the uh, second year. So we found that a lot of students, you know, you're able to get that aid to get into school, but continuing throughout you know, the rest of those years becomes really difficult. So that's why we right. started at the second year on. So. All right. Well, Ben Lindo, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your story. And really, I think the the main takeaway that I get aside from, I guess, you know, the power of mentorship is really your persistence in pursuing your goals. I think, you know, when we started, one of the things that you told me before we recorded was that the only person stopping you is yourself. And I feel that you even taking that small action of, seeking out 
someone that looks like you that can possibly help you out and how that really has just sort of changed your life. I mean, that's that's such a kind of a cheesy thing to say, but it really is. I mean, it, it's it set you on this trajectory and this path to where you are now, where you're doing this amazing work that's been used by probably millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. So this is this is amazing, man. Thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. No, I thank you for having me. I, I think, again, as a takeaway is definitely – you know, figure out what you got to do to design your own future. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Ben Lindo and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ben and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. No one designs at scale quite like Facebook does, and that scale is only matched by their commitment to giving back to the design community. Learn more about designing at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash design. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners, helps us move up in those iTunes rankings, helps more people see Revision Path in the design podcast category since there's not really any other design podcast out there like Revision Path. Um, I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work Revision Path is doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge levels start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,